You're listening to Are We Done Yet? with host Rob Anthony. We so often feel like the, the eternal other. You know, I'm not white enough to be white. I'm not colored enough to be colored. As soon as they're done with me, as a Jew, they're going to make them the target. Those are the words of Rabbi Dan Moskovitz, senior rabbi here at the Temple Shalom in Vancouver, and our guest today in studio. Rabbi Dan, thank you so much for coming by today. I really wanted to reach out to you and have you come on by and share your perspective as a leader of the Jewish community after I came across an article you had coined in the Vancouver Sun in which you noted a number of thoughts that clarified or reminded me just how isolated the Jewish community has been in general, um, but most definitely how unheard the Jewish voice seems to have been in light of the events of October 7th. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're, we're, we're forgotten until they need somebody to blame. And then, uh, and then oh, we've got the Jews, anti-Semitism. We can do this again. We've been doing it for 2,000 years. Right. So. We humans have this amazing gift to uh, conveniently find a scapegoat and then somehow have that scapegoat be the recurring boogeyman throughout time. Uh, we went right to the word anti-Semitism. And I wanted to share a clip with you in which U.S. Congressman Thomas Massey is debating and sharing his concerns about a bill that conflates and combines anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism. More problematically, the I, resolution I, suggests that all anti-Zionism, it states that all anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. That is either intellectually disingenuous or just factually wrong. And it unfairly implicates many of my orthodox former constituents in Brooklyn, many of whose families rose from the ashes of the Holocaust. While most anti-Semitism is indeed anti-Semitic, the authors, if they were at all familiar with Jewish history and culture, should know about Jewish anti-Zionism that was and is expressly not anti-Semitic. So here we have a U.S. congressman who happens to be Jewish, who is making the case for himself and I imagine his constituency that there is a difference between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. What do you make of that? Um, so it's interesting. So he's bringing up a very um, sort of fringe sliver of the Jewish community that is non-Zionistic because they are waiting for the Messiah to come to establish the state of Israel. I mean, in this particular clip, what he's talking about is the ultra-Orthodox, the Haredi community, that uh, many of whom live in Israel, but don't see the establishment of the state as something that should be done by human beings, but are waiting for God to do it. That's really not the anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism debate that is going on in the streets today. The debate that's going on, the discussions going on in the streets today is, can you criticize the state of Israel without being critical of Jewish people? Right. And the answer to that, of course, is yes, you can. Um, but to say that the Jewish people don't have a right to return to their ancestral homeland, to to claim Judaism or to claim Israel as uh, you know as very much part of the the their spiritual their national identity, um, because there are Palestinian people that are living there now, um, that actually is anti-Semitic. You can't separate Israel from Judaism. We have been praying for Israel not since 1948, but from the year 48 or, you know, however you want to count, from, from, the, from the time that Abraham uh, in the Bible was told from God to leave his father's house and to go uh, to the land that God would show him, and then all the way through to the, to the, uh, to the exodus uh, from Egypt back to the, land, the biblical land of Canaan, and then the exile after the destruction of the first temple, and the exile again after the destruction of the second temple in the year 70. And throughout all of that time, throughout history, 3,500 years of it, Jews have lived in that land. So the desire, the prayer to return to that land is central and core 
to what it means to express your religious identity as a Jew. Whether it's the state that establishes it or the Messiah that establishes it, that's where the divide exists within the Jewish community, but not that Israel is not important. Right. It is clearly important. So at the end of the day, just to bring it back down to the original uh, a question, from your perspective or your constituents' perspective, is anti-Zionism anti-Semitism? So yes, anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism okay. in the way that it is um, that we understand it today, separate from Nadler's um, carve out here for his ultra-Orthodox constituency in the area of New York where he uh, represents them. Um, the I, I think the thing that, that, that we need to remember is that um, Israel is the expression of um, the Jewish people's hopes and dreams for thousands of years. That doesn't mean that you can't criticize the Israeli government, but criticizing the Israeli government, like, let's say, criticizing the Canadian government, doesn't make you anti-Canadian. It actually might yeah. make you a patriot. And, and you know, the same would be true in the United States as it is in Israel. To, to criticize, as millions of Israelis have been doing for the better part of a year, up until October 6th, before the attack um, by Hamas, um, they've been criticizing the Israeli government. That's not anti-Zionism. That's anti-the Israeli government right. of the time. That's democracy. So I think you bring up a really important distinction, and I've always tried to make that distinction, for example, when talking about uh, Americans, right? We, we all rail against Americans, or a lot of us do, definitely globally, but I've always held that there is a distinct difference between the American people and U.S. policy. And I'm trying to attach that same line of thinking to the current situation in Israel. I distinguish between the Jewish people and the Israeli government and the IDF. It's becoming more and more difficult, but for me, they aren't one and the same. However, in the context of arguments and, and propaganda, they are being conflated as being one and the same. Why do you think, if you agree that that is the case, why do you think that neither side is taking the time to make that distinction? Well, you know, I, I think that, that, first of all, you're in the midst of a war, so even as they're saying in Israel today, with all the criticism that, that most Israelis have of, uh, and questions about how did this happen, how did our leadership, political, military, intelligence leadership fail us in such a way, that's for another time. We have a war to fight and there's an existential threat and you know, there, there's a monster at your door and you've got to deal with it. So to some extent, that needs to be put to the side for now. For how long it can be put to the side? It's not that there weren't criticisms of the United States during the Vietnam War. Exactly. Right. So we may be, and I think that this is a much shorter timeline, uh, you know, we may be at getting to that point where the war will continue to, to go and the criticism of how that war is being prosecuted will unfold at the same time. But that's sort of the nature of any armed conflict. Um, I mean, you're right. We are in the middle of an armed conflict and a war. Yeah. And much like it is in the Vietnam War and most conflicts, there comes a point where public opinion starts to drive the policy versus the original sin that we're battling against or defending against. And I think we're at a point now where Two months in, we are so far removed, at least in the context of this short timeline, so far removed from the events of October the 7th that the narrative now is the duration, right? And how much longer can this go on? And of course, those calling for a ceasefire uh, were immediately not impressed with the idea of a pause. But what did that mean to you to see a cessation of the hostilities for a brief period? 
You know, I think that, that you know, pause is an interesting term, right? Pause means that then we're going to take our finger off the button and play again. And that's the concern about a pause. Because if you don't change the facts on the ground, if you don't change the fact that Israel has, you know, within, you know, kilometers of its border, a, 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 an enemy that has sworn to wipe them off the face of the earth and now has demonstrated exactly how they intend to do that and has said this was just once of many, many times that we right. intend to do this, then pause becomes play again. So what we really need is stop, not pause. And how do you stop that? You know, how do you change the, the tape as it's going to play out? There's probably a number of elements. In my view, the key element to that is Hamas, that if you remove those that are sworn to destroy you and have now demonstrated exactly in what brutal, brutal way that they're going to do that, you know, then you can, if you can stop that, perhaps have a different narrative that goes forward, a different story. I would hope so. You know, does the Israeli government probably need to change with that? Yes, I would say certainly. And I said that on October 6th also and on October 7th. For the reasons that I mentioned earlier, we don't talk about that right now. You're in the middle of a war. But the Israelis are starting to talk about that, and they have wanted to change it, but it's a democracy. And so there are ways to change that. Um, I don't think that this government survives the next vote. There's no votes in Gaza. So, you know, that's, that's something to, to, to really be factored in here. How do you change the dynamic so that Hamas is not holding both Israel hostage and the Palestinian people hostage and holding peace hostage? Exactly, exactly. Uh, pivoting back for a moment to the article that drew me to you, you made a number of statements within that article that, again, really hit home with me. And I wanted to just share a couple of them uh, with you and obviously the audience uh, because they matter. They resonate with everything that you're saying here and that I think we need to fully embrace as we uh, navigate how to be allies uh, in this cause. You opened the article by stating, it's time for good people of humanity to pick a side. Stand for something. Stand with Israel. Stand for the people of Gaza terrorized by Hamas. Stand with humanity. Stand for good against evil. Wow. I mean, I think we've all done that. My fear is that we've done so in a very hyper-polarized way. And my hope, maybe naively so, would be that we can pick sides but still leave room for empathy yeah. and not get so dialed in. Yeah. What did you mean specifically when you suggested that we take a side? I mean, I think we want to take the side of life and we want to take the side of, of, um, of freedom. I think we want to take the side of respect for, for humanity. You can take that side and support the Palestinians and the Israelis at the same time if you stand against Hamas, who want to take life, who have shown and demonstrated that they will take life, who have an ideology that would no way further the, the kinds of Western values that we talk about of inclusion and of justice and, and, and of understanding and coexistence. They're not about coexistence. They have said all of that. So, you know, who can possibly stand with them at this time? And, and this is where it's so troubling to me because I see good people. I see people with well and good intentions, people who I have stood with on climate, on LGBTQ rights, on indigenous rights, on, you know, on all of those issues that are important to me as a, you know, as a, as a liberal in the, in the world, um, standing with folks in terms of Hamas, standing with an ideology and agenda that has absolutely no respect or care for them. And we just as soon as, soon as they're done with me as a Jew, they're going to make them the target. Um, you know, I mourn 
as I'm, or I would say that, that so let me say, I, I absolutely mourn the civilian casualties, the loss of life uh, in Gaza, full stop. It is terrible that civilians are caught up in this conflict. They are there because Hamas wants them there. They are there because every time that Israel has tried to establish some kind of peaceful coexistence, Hamas has done exactly, or lesser versions, of what it just did on October 7th, has thrown a wrench into it. Hamas is the impediment to peace. Um, And I think if we could all see that and get around that, um, then the Palestinians in Gaza and the Palestinians in the the occupied territories in the West Bank would, would have far more opportunities um, for a peaceful coexistence with uh, the Israelis that are living um, in that in that plot of land as well. Right. You make a really, really good point there, and I think an often missed point, and that is um, when it comes to communities like the LGTB community, that's a community that you've aligned yourself with, or your congregation and your practice, and the Jewish people in general have aligned themselves with wholeheartedly. Uh, Here in Vancouver, you were a champion of both that cause. You were a champion of the Indigenous missing children and were on the front lines with all community leaders in bringing a voice to that cause. Yet we're in this bubble now where those communities are standing with the Palestinian cause in contradiction to your cause in alignment with what fundamentally is a support of or could be seen as a support of the actions of Hamas. That has to leave a community feeling, if nothing else, isolated. Yes, I would say that we feel isolated. It's not unfamiliar to us. I think that the illusion was is that we weren't. We seem to associate Jewish generational trauma with the Holocaust in a little vacuum that we can sum up in the history books. And that's what we see as the, the struggle that the Jewish people have faced. When in reality... <laughs> whether it's the Holocaust or the words of Kanye West and buffoons like him or the alt-right with their Jews will not replace us, the Jewish community has been in a continued state of isolation and persecution from then, if not for centuries and thousands of years prior to that. How does your community fight that type of isolation? Well, I mean, this is just the way of what it is to be a Jew in the world. You know, we, the, the, we so often feel like the, the eternal other. You know, I'm not white enough to be white. I'm not colored enough to be colored. I'm not um, poor enough to be, you know, to be considered, um, you know, a marginalized group. Yet, because yet I'm not included in everything to be considered, you know, part of the privileged majority. There's no doubt that that I that I benefit from, you know, white privilege because I'm Jewish and white. But there are many Jews that are not right. white of color, and that privilege stops only so far as until they know that I'm Jewish, and then. You know, there's country clubs that you're not allowed to be in. There are holidays that you don't get to observe because the community doesn't follow your calendar. They follow the Christian calendar. I mean, there's all sorts of ways that Jews are othered. Um, but we are in this, this relatively new experience for the Jewish people because of Israel in 1948, because finally we have some sovereign power where for 2,000 years prior we never did. Jews could be pushed around and, uh, you know, and, and exiled from communities, and there was, no, there was nothing we could do about it. Right. We just had to run, and we did. And you know, for all sorts of, of sort of cultural reasons, that's why Jews have gotten into certain industries and businesses that are portable. That's why, you know, to the extent that Jews have you know investments in uh, in things that are um, 
you know, if, if you lose your farm, you can you, you can't take your farm with you. But if you're invested in precious jewels or art or whatever it is, you can pick it up and go because our people have had to do that time and again. That changed in 1948. That has continued to change as Israel has established itself. But then on October 7th, that wall got broken. And that is part of the trauma that the Jewish people are having right now. That sense of, okay, Israel has made it so that I cannot be erased again. And October 7th caused that into, called that into question. And that is what has been sent such a tremor through my community and my people. Right. And clearly that's been called into question, not only overseas, but right here at home in Vancouver for you. You had mentioned that as of the 7th, there was a need for a police presence outside of the synagogue and just heightened security for your community in general. Uh, has that changed at all? Has that simmered no, down? No, they haven't simmered down. It's still very much the case. I mean, there are a limit to the resources that our city or our province can provide. They can't park a police car outside of every Jewish institution 24 hours a day. It doesn't mean that it doesn't need to be there 24 hours a day, because my worry is on the 25th hour when the anti-Semite discovers that it's not there, that that's when they will you know, do something and do something perhaps quite violent and dangerous. Um, but no, we have, look, my synagogue spends, and I have a congregation of a hundred of, of a, uh, a thousand households. We have two full-time guards that are there every time there are people in the building. Name me a church or a mosque or any other house of worship or, or, or faith group that has to have 24 hour, seven day a week security right. in order to pray in Canada. Now, is that post October 7th or has that, that has always, always been the rule been the case? And that has been the rule for 11 years and long before that. I apologize. That is something that I did not know. I'm not sure if many people know that. Uh, I also can't think of any other religious community, maybe with the exception of the Muslim community post 9-11, where security has had to be in place as a staple, as a normal aspect of worship. Because it's not just our synagogues, it's our community centers and our day schools. So when you're uh, a six-year-old and you're going to you know grade one or grade two at your elementary school, and it's a Jewish elementary school, you see a guard outside of your school every day that you walk in. Now, I came from the United States, and I was used to seeing guards at schools and even armed guards at non-Jewish and at, right. you know, private, usually not public schools. But you don't see that in Canada. My kids went to public school here. They're not guards. If anything, I was a little worried that the doors weren't even locked right. coming from the United States and with all of its school violence and stuff like that. But here, Jewish institutions are, are guarded and and surveilled and and uh we have security committees and we talk about this stuff all the time and of course there's the the economic impact of that but there's the emotional as well and i've had people say to me i'm not going to send my kid to your program or your school unless there is heightened security now after october 7th two guards is not enough is the vpd police car going to be there are we going to have more guards you know stationed around the perimeter i mean this is just one of those small details that we know very little about that does explain and underscore just how united the Jewish community is and has to be in face of all of these threats, these real existential threats. But there is an internal threat if you want to perceive it as such uh, within your own community. And there is this group that is uh, illustriously referred to as Jew-hating Jews, which is a term I just loathe. But how does your community reconcile that even within their community, there are people that stand very aggressively against the conflict to the point where they are participating in rallies in which chants like from the river to the sea and Israel is a terrorist state are being levied against your community. Well, I mean, so there's an old joke, two Jews, three opinions. 
Um, so we're used to diversity of, of opinion and belief. I mean, within my own congregation, even though it's of one particular stream, it's a reformed congregation, uh, which is on the, the, the liberal side of things, you know, just sort of left of center, if you would. But I have a spectrum of practice and I certainly have a spectrum of belief about Israel or about, you know, the, uh, you know, about theology or, or, you know, what Judaism requires of us and how we live as a Jew in the world. So I'm used to difference of opinion and there's a, a great Jewish, tra- you know, tradition of debate and, and argument to try to find the, the, we would say the MS, the truth. Right. That's the purpose of the debate. It's not to win an argument, but it's to get to the core of what the truth of this thing is. And so that's, you know, that's the, the Jewish way. So whenever I'm working with others within the Jewish community and we're trying to work out, you know, sort of what is our communal position on this, it's rare that we will actually come to one cohesive thing, but hopefully there's a respect for a difference of opinion. Where it becomes problematic is for, you know, any group to say they speak on behalf of the entire Jewish people. I don't say that as, as a rabbi that could speak on behalf of thousands of Jewish people to the extent that they're members of my congregation or as a leader in this community. So when somebody comes out and says, you know, I'm a representative of this, and I'll say it, you know, fringe Jewish group that has aligned itself with the Palestinians and the Palestinian cause, and therefore I speak for all Jews because I'm Jewish, that's disingenuous, and that's, that, that is tokenizing Judaism. That's to say, well, I've got one Jew, and so therefore they speak for the whole Jewish community. I don't say that, and I could speak for thousands of Jews. Right. Tokenizing. I actually, I actually like that a lot. And it does remind me a little bit to some degree of the pressures or nuances that I face as a black person to be aligned with the Palestinian cause for no other reason than I am a person of color, right? There's this belief that I am black and I stand against colonization. Ergo, I need to align myself with anyone that is aligned with that cause, irregardless of whether the facts line up. And so I'll go to the protest, and I have gone to the Free Palestine protests, but I'll see people that are clearly not of the community, which is fantastic. Being an ally is amazing. But because of their association, purely because they think they need to be there or their social pressure to participate, it's the thing to do. They are saying things, whether it's from the river to the sea or intifada, or Israel is a terrorist state, that they know very little about, and they're doing so en masse without really appreciating the impact that that has, not only on the movement, whether it's a detriment, but to the Jewish community as well. You know, I think on one level, there's this sympathy Olympics that goes on, you know, who who has a more, more, you know, woeful and mournful story? Is it the Jewish people? Is it the Palestinian people? Is it people of color? Is it Asian American? You know, whatever it is, LGBTQ, you know, who, whose, whose story is going to get the pull on your heartstrings more? They're all mournful and, 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 and terribly difficult stories. And, you know, the challenge is to have empathy in more than one place at a time. Um, so you know, when it's a competition of, well, I've only got empathy for one side or the other, I say that you're not, um, you're not living up to, to, to actually what it means to be an ally because you can hold both at the same time. The Zen Buddhists say the hardest thing to do is to hold two things of value in your hands at the same time, two yes. things of equal value. And I, I can hold, I like to try, this is the challenge of humanity, my personal challenge, to hold the Palestinian people and their suffering um, in, in my hand, in my heart, at the same time that I can hold the suffering of the Jewish people in my hand and in my heart. Um, it may be that those two people are actually contributing to the suffering of each other, 
Um, and But that doesn't make their suffering any less. Uh, it does make it necessary for us to build bridges of understanding between those people if they are the ones that are actually causing the suffering right. upon each other. Uh, to, to the question of, of you know, allyship amongst people of color, that kind of thing. If we say we're against identity politics, if we say that we're not going to judge people based on the color of their skin, but the quality of their character, right? To the content of their character, to quote Martin Luther King Jr. So let's evaluate the content of their character and the validity of their cause. If their cause is from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free of all Jews, which is a, a call of genocide. You can't align with that unless you want to align with genocide. If their call is that the Palestinian people should have uh, autonomy and, and, and the freedom to determine their, their own fate and, and their own way in the world, I align with that 100%. Unfortunately, I also fear that we're so stuck in this comparative game of my plight is more woeful than your plight. We've been here longer. We were there first. Our body count is higher. I fear that we're talking ourselves out of the ability to even see something like that when the debate isn't where's the middle ground, but we were here first. I, I think that if, that, that if you're going to take the argument back to like who was here first, you know, I, I, you can go back and back and back and it depends sort of where you stop. There's no doubt that if you dig in the ground, the, the, the you know, Pre-1948 or whatever it is, you know, first of all, you'd find British evidence of British. If this is archaeology, you'd find the British, right? But then if you dig further, you'll find evidence of Islam. And if you dig below Islam, you'll find Christianity. If you dig below Christianity, you'll find Judaism. We know that as a historical fact. Right. That is one claim to the land. That's one claim to legitimacy. Another would be that the United Nations had a vote in 1947. They established the, the, the state of Israel. It was not a simple majority. It was a two-thirds vote. So the world decided that this land could be partly owned by Jews, and it was divided, and then the Israelis or the Jews, Jewish community accepted it, and the Palestinians didn't, and a war ensued. I'm not sure that gets you anywhere. I, I think that I come from the place of both have a need to live in that place. It is home to both peoples. If my need to live in that land means that I have to wipe you off the face of the earth, and I'm going to massacre you, then I have given up my right to have that land because it doesn't work like that. But if I accept that I will live in this land with you and we will work out coexistence and I do that as an honest broker of those things, then um, you know, that's how this moves forward. And um, I, I know that there are Jews that are you know, radical extremists who don't accept that, who would like to you know, um, see no Arabs, no Palestinians within the land of Israel. I don't support those folks. I am radically against those people. And I believe that the vast majority of the Jewish world, like you would distance yourself from any other extremist group, have, would try to distance themselves from that. It, it turns out that some of those folks are in government right now. Right. And if I'm not mistaken, there have been numerous protests over the past number of years, as recently as I think just prior to the 7th, in which the Israeli community came out um, in large numbers very much opposed to the current government and the path that it was on, again, prior to October the 7th. So, yes, there was a rally planned for, uh, for uh, the evening October 7th because it was a Saturday evening, and these rallies took place in the streets of Tel Aviv and all around the country with hundreds of thousands, and at points sometimes over a million if you, if you added it all together. And Israel's a, you know, a country of 16 million people. Um, the, uh, these rallies were taking place for, for the better part of a year. Um, and what's interesting about them is they were talking about allyship. 
So you had um, or some Orthodox Jews. You certainly had secular Jews. You had progressive religious Jews. You had um, Arab Israelis marching with these other groups who were citizens of Israel who wanted to see the government change, who didn't like the direction that it was going and who saw this as a judicial coup and all these kinds of things. And, and I've said before that that's how you change government policy is you peacefully take to the streets and you protest against it. You can't do that in Gaza because if you take to the streets and you protest against Hamas, you end up being murdered by Hamas. We, we've seen that. We just saw it on the news just a couple of weeks ago. Um, so why would anybody defend a, uh, you know, a, a uh, they're not even hardly to call them a government. Why would anybody defend, defend an, an, an authoritarian regime like that, that, um, you know, would just as soon kill the protesters against it? Right. Uh, that's who these folks that are aligning themselves with this, with the Palestinian cause in this way, at this moment, uh, that's who they are aligning with. For me, that's the crux of it. Not that people are aligning with the Free Palestine movement. I do align with that. I have attended those protests. For me, it's the means and the ways in which some, uh, I think perhaps too many, are choosing to align absent true knowledge of what they're aligning with. There is no question that the Jewish community is not at all happy with the protests or the nature of the protests taking place right now in the name of resistance or seeking justice and peace. I mean, a couple of things to that. No, we're not happy that that um, people are out there screaming for our uh, destruction and, 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 and our eradication. We're not happy that people are out not. there, you know, with all these terrible things that they're saying about, you know, the Holocaust was just to start and start the ovens again. And you know, I don't even want to repeat these terrible things um, that, you know, that strikes at a, at a core trauma that I didn't even know I had inside of me right. having, you know, my grandparents came to North America in the mid 1800s. They got out long before the Holocaust. Uniquely, I didn't, as far as I know, didn't lose any extended family members in the, in the Holocaust, but yet still I grew up you know, with grandparents who cautioned me about not feeling so secure in the United States where I grew up, not wearing outwardly Jewish symbols. Um, because what they saw happen, they said could happen again. And I would say to my grandparents, it's not going to happen again. We live in a different world and the whole thing. And now I'm seeing, well, my gosh, my grandparents, like so many things, were right. And I was naive. Um, but, you know, the other thing I think that needs to be said is that you can have that protest here in Canada because we have freedom of speech in Canada. You can have that protest in the United States for the same reason. You can have that protest in Israel. I mean, there are different rules and there's a war going on, but there are still protests happening in Israel. You cannot have that protest in any of the Arab countries that surround Israel, and certainly not in Gaza or the Palestinian territories, the occupied territories. You can't. No. Nope. So why are you supporting people that wouldn't even defend your right to protest? And I agree. At face value, I agree 100%. But then I know that I'll go right to a social media post that will show you know, another U.S.-made bunker bomb blasting through what looks to be a civilian building. And I'll go right back to, why doesn't Israel just stop? Enough is enough. This is too damn ugly and it's not proportional. It's an instant switch. I feel that I know better, but the humanitarian aspect of the way we're meant to think has us turning off the rational argument that there still is a country that needs to be defended from terrorists. It is brutal. War is 
awful, you know, and we're seeing war now in, you know, 24-7 living color, even more than Vietnam, certainly more than, than World War II when they came back, I guess, as black and white newsreels that were very curated for for the population that was watching right. them before their, you know, their, their movies on, you know, in the afternoon in the movie theaters and stuff like that. We're seeing it in its rawest forms. We saw that in Ukraine as well. Um, war is awful. I, I think if anything, seeing it should remind us of never to do it. Um, but when you're fighting to defend your life and your right to live your life in the way that it is and not to take somebody else's life, but to defend your own life, that's right. And so that's why I said in my article, pick a side. And good people of moral clarity need to, need, need to be on the side of, of defending life. Look, say all that you want about the Israeli government. Say all that you want about the, the methodology that they have chosen. To, and I'm not a military strategist. Thank you. The methodology that they have chosen, I'm not a military strategist. But they are not targeting civilians. They are clearly targeting Hamas. They are hitting civilians in the process. That is by design, by Hamas, not by Israel. Israel, I, I, I know, I, I, I know many of these soldiers because I know them and their parents. They do not want to kill civilians. It is not good for Israel. It's not good for their values. It's not good for their soul. And Hamas has placed them in a position where they, where it's unavoidable if they want to defend themselves. Right. You mentioned something earlier that I, I, I want to pick back up on, and that was the challenge of how do we weigh and maintain empathy and balance for both the Palestinian cause and the Jewish cause? And circling back to protests, how can my colleagues and friends that are regular participants in the Free Palestine protests go to those events and manage that balance? Or should they just not go? Is there a better way for us to amplify the Free Palestine message? I, I, if, I believe that if Palestinians and Palestinian supporters were, um, I don't want to say honest, honest isn't the right word, um, but if they truly looked at the situation that the Palestinians in Gaza find, that the Gazans find themselves in, they would no doubt see that Israel is, is partly to blame. But they would also see, and I think if they were honest with themselves, they would see that, that Hamas is clearly accountable and responsible for the conditions that the Palestinians find themselves in. That, that is not to say that Israel doesn't have a part of it, um, but, but, but Hamas has, has more of a share of it. And so if you wanted to look at this in a pragmatic way, how can I remove the, the, the majority of the suffering or the cause, the majority cause of the suffering of the Palestinian people? It would be to remove Hamas right. from that situation. So we could attend a rally to get, not you and I, but whomever, and we could too. I would go. <laughs> I would too, you know, and, and we, could, we, we, we could rally and we could yell, you know, eliminate Hamas, remove Hamas, you know, down with Hamas, whatever we want to say, and, and you know, we would all be on the, on the same page with that, or we, you know, in my imaginary world, we would. Um, I try every time that I speak publicly, and I, and I know that it, that it is something that we do intentionally within our community, to never forget that there are people suffering through this conflict, innocent people suffering in Gaza, um, because of this conflict, that in Israel's attempt to defend itself and its desire to, to return the hostages, uh, to rescue the hostages, um, innocent people are getting caught up in this. At the same time, the people of Gaza have a responsibility for the government that they elected. And if they didn't elect it, then the government they find themselves saddled with. If there are 2 million people in Gaza, 
and there are only, some estimate, 30,000 Hamas fighters in Gaza, then where are the 170,000 or 1.7 million people, excuse me, I'm even doing that math right, I'm not, the, 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 the 1.97 million people, okay, half of them are children, divide that in half, the 800,000, whatever it is, people, why aren't they standing up against them? Because I'm right now giving them the benefit of the doubt that they're not doing it because they're scared. They're not doing it because um, they, uh, you know, they're being prevented from doing it by Hamas, who divides and who, who um, you know, will, will create situations where it's not safe for them to go out to do those things. I think that might be generous on my part. What, what I have learned over these last two months since October 7th, what my grandparents knew and I thought was naive or I was being naive, was that, no, there are people out there that really do hate me because I'm Jewish. There are people out there that are willing to, to, to rape and murder and mutilate women, young women, and children because they are Jewish and or Israeli. We saw that. I'm not speculating on that. We, we, from their own GoPro cameras, we saw what they did. So maybe there really is evil in the world. Maybe there really is um, violent hatred. I think we have to be honest with ourselves and say that that is clearly being evidenced here. And so that needs to be, that, that, needs, that, that can't exist in a world that I want to live in. No, of course not. That's not a world that any of us aspire to live in. Although I would argue that I think that organizations like Hamas or ISIS actually thrive on creating and living in those environments. But let's talk martyrdom. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a term that we see uh, in the, some of these rallies as free the martyrs or long live the martyrs. I don't know if the Westerners know what that means, but... Let's look at the reality here that from my perspective, even if we end up, I say we, even though it's not me, but if Hamas is eliminated as a threat or at least minimized at the cost of, at this point, 20,000 um, Palestinian lives, does anybody genuinely believe that we are not breeding the next super terrorist group that will come up and realize that there is now a need to elevate the terrorism game because the last time didn't work. So I think that that's the cause of eternal vigilance that you can't allow things that are, um, you know, so, so abhorrent, so, so violent rhetoric and actions that, that are, that, that can be so dangerous. You can't allow them to take root in your society, not here in Canada not in Israel, not in the Palestinian uh, territories, you know, not anywhere. And what happens is we normalize this stuff. We normalize rhetoric where we say, well, it's just words, you know, and it's just words on the internet. And so they've used extreme things. They've said from the river to the sea, but they don't really mean it that way or whatever it is, but then it becomes normalized. And then when that is allowed to happen time and time again, that's become the new foundation upon which, you know, okay, anything above, anything below that is fine, right? We're talking about the, the, the tactics that are used. We're talking about the, the, the approach, the inhumanity. That's what you're fighting against, not the numbers. But what was at the core? What was the essence? What was the motivation? You're fighting against the motivation. And um, we have to be on guard against that. We, we have to not allow that to take root. And that starts in education. It starts young. It, it, it starts with some of the things that we've learned about indigenous peoples. We've learned about people of color. We've learned about people um, you know, amongst the LGBTQ um, uh, community, that you have to create and, and educate with a sensitivity and an empathy for that community's experience from the very beginning 
so that it becomes ingrained into how the the upcoming generation sees the world through that lens. We're doing it with climate change right now. Right. I think I grew up, nobody talked to anything about recycling. Maybe I think a little bit when I was growing up, they talked about recycling. Now, you know, I'm all aware about recycling. My kids are all aware. And that's the, you know, the baseline of like environmental right. causes, right? So we've taught that. We have to carefully teach what it means to be an anti-Semite. We have to carefully teach where that leads. So there is a place for moral education in our society. And I think that we've moved away from it because it gets politically complicated. You know, where do you, where do you start and where do you stop? But, you know, I think that we could say that we need to teach about the value of human life. And sometimes we need to, not sometimes, we need to name those lives that are not held valuable in society. Um, there is no doubt that, um, that Palestinian lives are not held valuable by some in society. But there is also no doubt and decades and decades of evidence, millennia of evidence, that Jewish lives are not held valuable in society either. And in fact, yeah. are so often used as the, uh, you know, as the scapegoat, as the place that you can go to place all of your hate, to place all of your blame. That's the history of anti-Semitism. And to deny that is to deny the, the, the history of the, the persecution of my people and those that have been persecuting my people yeah. and, you know, the Crusades, the Inquisition and all of those things that have happened throughout time. Uh, your community must be full of questions and trauma. We've talked about the need for police presence. Uh, what are the kinds of questions that they're asking you on a daily basis, what are the questions that they put to you that keep you up at night? Well, I worry about lots of things before October 6th, right? You know, my, my questions would be like, you know, why aren't they coming <laughs> to synagogue? <laughs> or, you know, how are they observing Judaism? Whatever it is. But no, the questions that I get now that absolutely keep me up at night are, you know, Rabbi, I don't feel comfortable wearing my yarmulke in public. Is it okay for me not to? Jews have an amulet on the doorpost of their house called a mezuzah. It contains within it a prayer from the book of Numbers that says you should love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. You should think of these words when you enter your door and when you leave your door, among other things. And I have congregants that are calling me, telling me they're taking theirs off, and they think that I should send a note to the congregation that they should do the same. Because it, it's a symbol, it's a known symbol of Jewish faith and uh, as such makes their makes their home a target. Right, because they saw that uh, in some communities, people that had mezuzahs on their doors have had vandalism, have swastikas spray-painted on their homes or windows broken, or just people... Look, during, uh, during Halloween, there was a rumor going around that people were going around looking for mezuzahs on doors. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but it's true enough that it made it into sort of the rumor mirror that it still created the fear, right. even if it didn't have the, the actual action that came with it. So I get questions about that. Um, you know, I get questions about where does this end? Will Israel survive? Will the Jewish people survive? Will there ever be peace between these two people? Will I ever feel safe again? Um, I get questions about where did our allies go? Where, where did the people that we have stood with, why aren't they standing with us? Um, and those are some painful questions because the answer often is that I give is they didn't really like us. They were aligned with us because it was convenient for them, but they didn't believe in it for themselves. Prove me wrong. I would love to be proven wrong, but that's how it's playing out. You needed us to stand with you and all of our Jewish, I don't know, wealth or intellect or connections to, to move the LGBTQ agenda or the environmental agenda or you know, take your pick to move it along. 
But when our community is under uh, is under pressure and under threat of, of life and death, you walk away. Where were you then? Yeah. We're very fickle these days, aren't we, with with how we approach allyship and how we expect it to be given to us and how we volunteer it back. Or in many cases, to your point, don't volunteer it back. Right. I mean, I guess, you know, there, there are sort of a couple of different sort of buzzwords at play here. One is intersectionality, you know, that all these things are related to each other. Freedom in Palestine is related to freedom for LGBTQ, is related to environmental justice. I mean, this is Greta Thunberg and her whole thing, right? You know, that there can't be no environmental justice if there's not justice for the Palestinians. I, I think that those are separate issues. I think they have a lot of the same people involved with them, but, you know, there are not correlations be, between the two. Um, you know, but the other, so, so part of it is intersectionality, um, but the other part of it is also cancel culture, you know, that, well, if you're going to stand with them on this, then I'm not going to stand with you on anything. And I think that one of the reasons why Jews have found themselves to be so isolated right now is that those that um, might be inclined to stand with us at this moment of, you know, moral uh, and, and, and physical you know, uh, vulnerability, uh, you know, if not grave, uh, you know, mortal concern, is that they're worried about losing their friends in these other circles. And so they can't leave their environmental justice circle. They can't leave their LGBTQ circle or whatever it is to go stand with their Jewish friends at this moment when the Jewish community needs them, because then they will lose, they'll be canceled and kicked out of that other tribe. Right. We have to stop doing that in our society and we have to, to the, and it's hard, but nobody said this was supposed to be easy. We have to evaluate each moment and each cause for what it is in that moment and that cause. Uh, and if that means that we have to stand against some of our folks so that we can stand with other folks that need us, then we should do that. Now, maybe that's what the pro-Palestinian non-Muslim community is doing. And they've decided that Israel is the bad guy here and, and the, the Palestinians are um, the, the, the ones that are most vulnerable and the underdog. And so no matter what is done in their defense, I'm going to stand with them. Or no matter what Hamas does in their name, it doesn't matter because Israel's bad and Jews are bad. I think that's a really big part of the challenge that a lot of people have when they navigate um, how to be an ally to both or whether they should be an ally to both at all. Uh, and that is this belief, and it's, I think it's a solid and true belief that Israel is a more dominant state, right? It literally is the neighbor with the bigger stick, with the better and bigger economy, with the mightier military. Uh, it is essentially the Goliath versus the David that is Palestinian or Palestine. Um, add to that the fact that this Goliath has several other Goliaths in their corner via the UK, the United States. It makes it very difficult to not see the Palestinian people as the underdogs. I do believe they are the underdogs in every sense of the way. doesn't matter to me whether it's self-induced, and I don't believe it entirely is, but they are the underdog. And... That just instills in everybody globally this belief that we're going to stand by the little guy. I was chatting with a Jewish friend of mine in the States the other day, uh, and he was speaking on behalf of his family back home. And he said to me, I just wish that the U.S. and the U.K. would stay away. He may have added some <laughs> fuck yous in there, but from his perspective, it wasn't helping the cause 
to fight the fact or his stance that Israel is not a colonizing settler culture. For him, it was bad optics that these other settler cultures were jumping to their aid. He wanted them out. He wanted them to stay away. You know, the United States has been an incredible, not, you know, look, friendships are complicated, right? I I say to my wedding couples, relationships would be so much easier if they didn't involve other people. (laughs) Um, So, you know, the United States had its own agenda. It has its own political, um, you know, needs here. It's not just there to support Israel. It's there to support its own uh, diplomatic uh, raison d'etre. That said, there is no doubt that the that that Israel has benefited tremendously and might not even still be in existence were it not for the robust backing of the American uh, government and their military uh, complex now and and largely in previous conflicts as well. Um, and so I appreciate what they've done, and I don't want them to stay away. I want them to stay right right where they are, and they also exert the right kind of pressure on Israel uh, at times to I think with sensitivity. That's how I'm reading it right now recognizing that Israel has an existential crisis on its border and, and has a right and a need, not just a right, a need to defend itself so that this right. doesn't happen again. And they've said that time and again. Right. So we know that right now the, the coalition in support of Israel and its, and its defense, the UK, um, United States, etc., is strong. Um, here at home, the sentiment against Israel seems to be rising. Is there any concern on your part that the political sentiment might also shift Uh, I'm reminded, of course, of the speech that Justin Trudeau gave in which we went from not saying too much to essentially calling for uh, an end to the current conflict. I have been clear that the price of justice cannot be the continued suffering of all Palestinian civilians. Even wars have rules. All innocent life is equal in worth Israeli and Palestinian. When your community hears that, what is the immediate takeaway? Is it, does it resonate? Is it an immediate knife in the back? How did that sit with you when, uh, when you heard that? Um, here, here's the thing with what he just said, right? That all innocent life is equally valuable. Absolutely. I agree with that. I completely agree with that. But not all of the people involved in this conflict are, are equally innocent. What responsibility do the people of Gaza have for allowing themselves to be ruled by a terrorist cabal like Hamas? What responsibility do they have? Are they completely innocent in what has been brought down upon them? You poke a bear and the bear attacks you. Do you, do you blame the bear or do you have some responsibility for poking? Let's remember And this is what the article was about. On October 7th, they attacked innocent people in their homes, children and women and old men. They raped them. They murdered them. They violated them and brutalized them and then took 240 of them hostage. They knew what was going to happen. If, as we've learned, they've been planning this for two years and the only people that seemed to not know that it was going to happen or were not listening was the intelligence forces and the political leadership of the IDF in Israel, but that the average person in Gaza knew this was going to happen, why didn't they stop it? If they didn't want it to happen, why didn't they make a phone call? Why didn't they have a rally? Why didn't they scream to the world, we don't want to be associated with this? I mean, look, you're not wrong in the sense that, yes, here in the West, that is definitely 
uh, our approach to managing protest and rebelling against things that we see as being not in alignment with what we want. Right. But that's because we live in a fairly safe society where we can do that relatively safely. I'm not sure if the same can be said for the conditions on the ground for a Palestinian. Uh, if we accept, right, if, if we accept that Hamas is a terrorist organization that, as you've said, is also terrorizing and brutalizing its own people, is it safe for a Palestinian as a single person or as a group to rise up and say, we want Hamas out? But that doesn't make you innocent in it. You, you know, at the very least, silence is complicity, Right. When the citizens of Israel saw the direction that their government was going after this extremist, most extreme government in the history of the state of Israel was elected, they took to the streets in mass. And they said, we don't, we don't want to be associated with this. This is not us. Now, were they able to successfully change that government before October 7th? No. But they did actually slow the progression of what was going to be the radicalization of this government. That is taking responsibility. That makes you, um, that, that is not silence in, in, in the face of that. That's not complicity. That's standing up against, right? That's good people doing the right thing. Where are the good people in Gaza doing the right thing? I don't think that's a realistic expectation. To be honest, I don't think it's a fair comparison to what we in the West here would do because we're living in, we're living in seriously and vastly different circumstances when it comes to freedom. To your point earlier, right? You mentioned this earlier, uh, the conditions on the ground there mean that they don't have the right to protest. It's not a safe place to protest. So I don't know to what degree I can expect them to to band together to speak against the organization that we also say is terrorizing and brutalizing them. So That's say that, because we're not even hearing that, right? That That is not... That is not leaking out. Occasionally, there have been like these interviews where somebody says something. You talk about, you know, these minders that say you can't speak out of turn. Somebody says something and they quickly, they shuffle that person off and you may never see them again, right? right? But this has been going on for two months. If that was the feeling amongst those in Gaza, that they don't want to be associated with these atrocities that Hamas has done either, they would say that. So to the, what the prime minister just said there, not all actions are without consequence. And inaction has consequence also. Yeah. Some of my friends who have family not only um, in Gaza, but in the West Bank and in Lebanon would argue that it's just not safe to speak against Hamas or Hezbollah, period. Back here at home where it is uh, safe for us all to protest and share our uh, various viewpoints uh, publicly in public gatherings, uh, unbeknownst to me, because apparently I'm not as in touch as I thought I was, the Jewish community has also been having uh, weekly rallies, I believe, on on a Saturdays or Sundays. Has it been what you thought it would be, growing in numbers? Yeah, you know, um, look, we are 35,000 Jews in, in Vancouver. Maybe 16,000 of those live within Metro Vancouver and could you know reasonably get to the art gallery on 2 o'clock on a Sunday. We've had 1,000 people. We've had, at the most, uh, 1,500 people at one of our bigger ones right afterwards. Generally, it's around 500 or so, which is a still pretty good representation when you think about you know a percentage of 16,000 people right. maybe that you could draw from. We're never going to win the numbers game. There's 17 million Jews in the entire world. Um, you know, there's something like 1.7 billion Muslims. Um, so, you know, it's not about that. What 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 is... Uh, challenging for us and also creates some hope 
is that um, is when members of the non-Jewish community show up in support of this cause, you know, in, in support of peaceful coexistence. These rallies are to bring the hostages home. These rallies are to end anti-Semitism, anti-Semitic hate in Vancouver. These rallies are for Israel's right to exist, not Israel's right to conquer another land, not the destruction or eradication of the Palestinian people, the destruction and eradication of Hamas, yes. But these are rallies that are for peaceful purposes. I wish that more people would come out in support of that. I think some of it is maybe they don't know about it, so maybe they will from this. You know, so I, I, it's important for our community to do these things, whether it's a numbers game or not. We need to come together. We need to see each other. We need to get that strength and solidarity yep. in, in feeling that we, uh, we have each other as we go through this. On that concept of uh, the Israeli or the Jewish community rallying together in this flood of social media content with regards to the Palestinian um, atrocities that are taking place, and I do think of them as atrocities, I saw very little in the way of organized Jewish organizations in Canada or North America actively and aggressively countering that messaging or at least sharing their perspective of um, the Israeli viewpoint of this. So the Center for Israeli and Jewish Affairs here in Canada is doing an amazing job of putting out um, some really good content to share uh, that perspective. That's got to leave your community feeling um, a lot more supported than perhaps they were initially. Yeah, we, we spend a fair amount of time trying to combat, um, you know, so many of these internet memes that are out there. You know, you can put the most egregious, most horrendous stuff out there. And because of the way algorithms work, it'll just get amplified, right? So anger gets amplified really well. It's not in the nature of my community and it's not in my nature personally to, to rant and rave in anger about things. Jews pray for peace in every single prayer service that they have had for thousands of years, not just after October 7th, but we have been praying, and not just after 1948. We've been praying for peace since, since you know Moses left Egypt. All our community wants to do is live peacefully in that land, and, and we have said on numerous occasions, both politically and, and uh, sermonically, that um, if, the, if the Palestinians and the, and the Arabs laid down their guns, there would be peace. And if the Israelis and the Jews put down their guns, there would be no more Jews in Israel. And that to me is critical to the concept of a ceasefire. It's very easy for us to call for a ceasefire uh, when we look at it through the context of traditional Western approaches to warfare. Mm -hmm. But we're not dealing with a traditional armed force that's going to respect a ceasefire because to your point, the moment that, I fear the moment that the Israeli side lowers their arms, uh, as has been the case, uh, whether it's Hamas or ISIS, they will simply use that ceasefire or that that concession to further bolster either the current attack or prepare for something two years down the road. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I think that the, the counter argument to that often is, well, but Jews don't have a right to be on that land, right? They, they are somehow, you know, usurpers into somebody else's home. But it's a false argument. It's a false argument archaeologically and historically. It's a false argument. It's a false argument legally because of the vote of the United Nations in 1947. It's a false argument pragmatically because just as we would say the Palestinians are never going to be removed from that land, you are not going to remove the Jewish people from that land either. You, it, it can't be removed from them and they can't be removed from it. So that gets you nowhere. The, the argument that Jews have no right to be there gets you nowhere. And if that's your argument, then you're arguing for genocide. 
and you have no you have no place in a civilized society. I want to talk a little bit about the word genocide, which is, uh, from my perspective, being used far too aggressively and in far too careless a manner. When you look at the definition of the word genocide, um, I believe it's the killing, the deliberate killing of a large group of people with the explicit intent of eradicating that people. So not the killing of a large group as a consequence of, of war, as we've talked about, but the deliberate intent of wiping that populace uh, off the planet. So we know that was the case with the Holocaust. Of course, we know it's the case in Cambodia with the killing fields, uh, in the Congo, uh, in Rwanda, obviously, recently in Bosnia and Herzegovina. For me, the challenge is, I don't know that it applies here. You'd have to accept or believe that the IDF targeting of uh, Gaza and the Palestinians is deliberate with the intent of eradicating them versus the intent of eradicating Hamas, albeit in what I think is a fairly non-proportional, aggressive, ridiculous manner, to be honest. But what makes it harder for me to see the word genocide applied here is that I feel that it's being used deliberately because it's a contrast and a trigger point for the Jewish people themselves for obvious reasons. When you look at what's taking place in Gaza right now and the loss of 20,000 plus lives, do you consider that to be genocide? Absolutely not. How so? Well, I mean, there's a few points to it. I mean, one, it is not the policy, it is not the practice, it's not the intention of the Jewish people or the Israeli government to wipe the Arab people or the Palestinian people off the face of the earth. If it was, then their population would not have quadrupled in size in the 75 years that, or even more than quadrupled in size, in the 75 years that the Jews have had the state of Israel. As, you know, as genocides go, that's not a very good way to do it if everybody is multiplying and not subtracting. But it's not at all the policy. It's not at all the intention. There's never been a meeting. Let's wipe them off the face of the earth. There have been meetings about that with Jews, yeah. the Wansi Conference. Apparently, Hamas <laughs> had that meeting when they sat and planned the October 7th attacks. So, um, you know, that is their intention. I don't think that they will be successful in doing it. Um, but uh, it is not at all an accurate description of what is the, the view, the values of the Jewish people. Far from it. A friend of mine uh, who's trying very hard to stay neutral in all of this, uh, which I guess would mean he's not taking a side, going back to your original article. Uh, he said to me that the idea of the Free Palestine Movement using the term genocide, or the public at large using the term genocide as it relates to this scenario, is the equivalent of misappropriation, which we talk about a lot uh, in today's culture and cancel culture. When you hear the word genocide, how does that resonate with you? I mean, in some ways, it's kind of gaslighting, you know? No, I'm not going to let you believe that what is true is true. I'm going to flip it, Right. Or what is not true is not true. I'm going to flip it and, and, and take the thing that you are most worried about and accuse you of doing that. The thing you're most worried about of happening to you, that you have evidence that has happened to you, that our world knows has happened to you, I'm going to accuse you of doing that to somebody else. That would be the furthest thing from any Jew that I would ever associate with, and I would associate with just about all of them, that would be the furthest thing from a Jewish person's mind that they would ever forget about whether it's Palestinians or people from Mars, 
when you have had something happen to you, I mean, this is the this this is the essence of empathy, right? To not do to another person that which you would not have done to yourself. This has been done to us. We would never ever do that to another person. And if we are, if we do, that is that that is the antithesis of our intent. That is uh, a an extremist view that 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 laws and 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 justice need to eradicate uh, and and remove from whether it's you know positions of power or government or influence and we do the 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 most radical extreme in every society every community has them right the most radical and extremist groups in Israel um, when they do those things when they when they you know when they uh, commit atrocities when they attack Arab communities I wish that it was more so that they were held accountable for it than they are by this current government. There is bias there. There is no doubt. But even still, the rule of law yeah. prevails. Are you referring to the issue of settlers and and um, settlements? The, the hilltop youth, that that yeah. that class. I, I I reject them. I reject their tactics. Uh, I believe that they are mis, misguided. I believe that they are dangerous. I believe that they have to be held accountable and that the Israeli government has to hold them accountable. I'm really glad to hear you say that. I think a lot of people would be because uh, organically and especially now what happens when we see incidents of settler on Palestinian violence is that we right away lump that into the aha the Israelis are horrible terrorists in and of themselves which is not the case but these bad actors uh, make it all too easy for the continued marginalization of the Jewish community so I want nothing to do with those people. I want somebody in Gaza to say what I just said about the hilltop youth and the Israeli settler movement about Hamas. Now, maybe I could say because I'm sitting here in Vancouver, but then where is the, the Vancouver you know, pro-Palestine community standing up and saying what I just said about you know, Jewish radical settlers, extremist settlers, where are they saying it about Hamas? Because they're certainly not saying it at their rallies. No, I think that you're right. Unfortunately, and I mean, I do mean unfortunately, uh, you're right. That's that's not a narrative that I'm hearing at uh, the rallies. It's a reason why it's increasingly hard for me to go there and say anything because I haven't seen uh, a component of that movement say what you just said. Uh, I think it will go a long way towards resolving things, at least domestically here, bringing the rhetoric down mm-hmm. if if there were like-minded voices um, from the movement that I also align with, the free Palestine movement. Right. Or to your point that they have no idea what they're saying. Right. right. They don't know what the river or the sea is. It's just a great rhyme and it's catchy. And part of the problem that I think we have, particularly in sort of the, the 18 to 35 year old cohort demographic or 18 to 30 demographic is their, their, you know, they will jump on whatever popular meme-driven bandwagon, and so you know, look if you're not if if you're not poor enough and you're not brown enough, then you're not right enough in the society, and so they're going to go look for that, and they're going to jump on that, and I, God willing, I hope one day, not too far from now, they wake up and they realize just how blind and 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 uh, ill-informed they are. It's very hard to participate in a process where you know things are being said that actually do a disservice to the cause that you're trying to support. Maybe that's altruistic, but being mindful means being mindful of what we say and to whom we say it, regardless of whether we intend good or bad. 
how can I, how can my colleagues or how can we, how can all of us uh, participate in free Palestine rallies in a way that doesn't further damage our Jewish friends or just the Jewish community in general or the peace process in general? Look, I, I don't think we solve this in rallies. You know, we're out there in large part to support each other. I'm sure the Palestinian group is out there also to support each other um, and probably out there to change government policy. And maybe we're out there to, to, to maintain Canadian government policy in terms of a support for Israel and two state solution. Um, but, but the way that this changes is through conversations. You know, I, I say often that Jews are not going to solve anti-Semitism, right? I can say anti-Semitism is bad all day long, but it's only when a non-Jew says to their non-Jewish friend, you shouldn't make that joke or you shouldn't say that thing because right. that's wrong. And I don't have any skin in that game other than I'm a human being. That's what changes it. So, you know, how are we going to, 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 to solve this problem? It's going to be when, if I go back to the article that I wrote, when we pick a side and we say, look, where, where is my morality in this? What, what, what is defensible and what is indefensible? And the rape and the murder and the killing of innocent women and children is indefensible always. Full stop. And that's right where we jump back into this comparative game of whose women and children and babies are more valuable uh, than the others. And we'll, we'll end this amazing conversation and people that listen may very well have been buying into the narrative of we've got to find this middle ground, but right away we'll revert to, well, what about Palestinian babies? What about Palestinian women and children? And they'll be right. Uh, we seem to leverage women and children a lot when, when it comes to um, trying to make the other side seem like the demons. But this comparative game of who's got the higher body count and whose atrocities are worse than the others or whose atrocities justify the other ones, it's just futile. Um, but it is a narrative war that I feel that the Israeli government is losing. This, this is complicated, but it's not complicated also, right? So, you know, to, to your point, yes, so are Palestinian babies. Who is endangering Palestinian babies? Who, who has put them in harm's way? Is it Israel? Or was it Hamas when they came over and murdered Israeli babies? Right. Is it Hamas when they didn't build bunkers and shelters and bomb shelters for their own civilians and put their fighters underground and put their civilians above ground? That's not how it's supposed to work. Um, you know, so, so who, who has endangered those babies? You're absolutely right. It, it is, it is absolutely terrible when babies are, are killed. They're innocent. They have no, they, they have no power or, or control or agency in what is happening around them. Children, we can just say children, not even just babies. Um, and so we should hold accountable those people that have put them in danger and in harm's way. Rabbi Dan, thank you so much, honestly, for coming uh, by today. It's much appreciated. We've had a frank and needed conversation about the impacts to the Jewish community uh, and, and what it means short term and long term. My only hope is that we can find a way to balance the, the empathy for both. I think you've given us some insight and tools to make that possible. So again, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This episode of Are We Done Yet? is brought to you by Rob Anthony Productions and is part of the Oh Hey TV network. Guest and audience statements have not been fact-checked or verified and do not necessarily reflect the thoughts and opinions of the show or the network. To learn more about Oh Hey TV and how to be a guest on one of our shows, visit ohey.tv.